This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. And welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms to be encouraged, nurtured, and inspired. Also, you'll learn the latest in teen research and trends and get practical parenting tips. You really can improve your relationship with your teen and enjoy the teenage years. Welcome back, everyone, to the 138th episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. One of the many issues that's on a parent's mind is how to keep their teens safe from abusing alcohol or drugs. It's not the bad teens who are abusing alcohol and drugs, and it's not the bad parents who raise teens who have alcohol and drug problems. Actually, all teens are vulnerable to alcohol and drug addiction. The way that teens are hardwired, especially with their brain development, make them vulnerable to all sorts of addictions. Today's guest is an expert because he's been in the trenches with teens, struggling with addiction for two decades. I love this interview because he's knowledgeable, passionate about the subject and encouraging. Richard Capriola has been a mental health and substance abuse counselor for over two decades. He recently retired from Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas, where for over a decade, he treated both adolescents and adults diagnosed with substance use disorders. He is the author of The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. So welcome, Richard Capriola. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to the program. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, and my moms are going to really benefit from your experience, for sure. So you just wrote The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. 
So can you tell me why you wrote it? Yes, I wrote it because I had been at Menninger Clinic for over a decade. And during that time, I treated adolescents and met with their families on a regular basis. And so many times I would sit across from a family and I would go through their child's history of using a substance, what drugs they'd been using and how often they'd been using and how much. And and I would give them a diagnosis of a substance use disorder. And when I finished, they would look across at me and they would say, I had no idea this was going on. Or if they did suspect their child was using a substance, they might say, I sort of knew something was going on, but I didn't know it was this bad. And these were good parents. These were good parents doing the best that they can. They missed the warning signs because no one told them what to look for. So after I retired from Menninger, I wanted to put together this roadmap, this short book. It only runs about 100 pages because I know parents are busy. They don't have time to read volume of information. So I kept it to about 100 pages, but I wanted to pack it with a lot of information that I hope parents will find useful and helpful. It's a book that I hope that they can read and walk away from and say, okay, I've got this. I I understand it a little bit better. I hope I don't have to deal with this, but if I do, I feel more confident that I can handle it. Yeah, it's exactly what you just said. And it's packed with really great information. And it's something that parents could go back to and just read a chapter and get information. So, yeah. And and you also have a workbook. I do have a workbook because parents need help too. It's not just the child that's going through this struggle. It's the entire family that's going through this struggle. So I wanted to recognize that parents need help too. So I put together this brief workbook, which goes through exercises to help parents write down some of the emotions that they're feeling, how this has affected them as a parent. There's some exercises on anxiety. There's a brief exercise on slow breathing. There's information on how to communicate communicate with your child because so many times we're good at listening to our children's words, but we're not so good at listening to the feelings behind those words. So I have an exercise sort of that helps parents tune into the feelings. I think that workbook is best used in consultation with a therapist like yourself or a counselor or somebody who can give them feedback on the work that they do. But I wanted to write the workbook to recognize that parents need help too. Yeah, no, that's very, very true. So I know that your book is the answer to this question, but what have you learned over two decades of treating substance abuse? I've learned that it's an entire family system that's affected. It's not just the teenager that's using a substance, although much of the attention is directed at the child, and rightly so, but the entire family is affected by it. And and sometimes the entire family needs treatment as well as the child. They certainly need support, emotional support and encouragement. They need information. They need to have a partner with them as they go through this. And by partner, I mean a support system to help them get through this. The other thing I learned is I saw some remarkable changes that occurred in adolescents as they went through treatment. None of them wanted to be in treatment. They all came to Menninger fighting and arguing and bargaining and trying to work their way out of it. Uh, But the parents held the line and it was remarkable to watch how they got involved in the treatment program and the assessment program 
time. And over a period of two or three weeks, there were some remarkable changes that went on with those kids. Now, a lot of them went on to further treatment, more residential treatment, but it was really rewarding to see how they evolved and how they changed. And, and the message to parents in that is that treatment works. We know that treatment works. So it can be frustrating, it can be aggravating, it can be heartbreaking, but if parents just stay with it and stick with it, there can be some remarkable progress that's made through treatment. Well, that's wonderful because I think the moms who are listening need a little encouragement because a lot of times they just feel hopeless and they're just kind of caught in this situation. Yeah, they feel hopeless. They feel as if they say they somehow failed as a parent. They ask themselves, what went wrong? How did I miss this? And in reality, they're doing the best job that they can. Um, So yeah, I, I do want to give a sense of hope to the moms that are out there. Yes. So you've probably seen a lot of changes over 20 years. What drugs are today's teens using versus like 20 years ago? What changes have there been in the last few years? Well, teenagers are still attracted to alcohol and marijuana. Those are the two primary drugs that, that attract teens. There is some experimentation with uh, with the more hardcore illicit drugs like cocaine, and, and there is some experimentation with prescription drugs like Adderall and Ritalin, but those tend to be less than 5% of teenagers. Teens are still attracted to alcohol and marijuana, but what has changed in the last few years and is rather alarming is this idea idea of vaping, where they will take a substance like nicotine or marijuana, they'll use an instrument that turns it into a vapor, and then they will inhale it uh, as a vapor. It's called vaping. In the last three years, there's been a tremendous surge in the number of teenagers that are vaping marijuana and nicotine. An example is that three years ago, the number of high school seniors that were vaping nicotine was 18%. Today, it's 34%. Mm. The the percentage of high school seniors three years ago that was vaping marijuana was 9%. Today, it's 22%. So we've seen these rather dramatic increases just in the last three years of teenagers uh, who have moved into vaping nicotine and marijuana. Yeah. But I think also maybe the silver lining in that is I think some parents will feel like that every kid is vaping. So it's not every kid. It is not every kid. Uh, the, the, the majority of them are not vaping, but those who are vaping uh, seem to be vaping at, at really high rates. Right. No, I agree with you. So I think parents with younger kids want to keep their kids away from those, quote, bad kids who use drugs. Yeah. But I don't think that it's about being a bad kid. I think it's about being a vulnerable kid. Like I see lots of kids turning to alcohol and drugs because of anxiety. So why do you think kids are vulnerable to substances like alcohol or marijuana? Well, I usually tell parents that every child is vulnerable. Uh, There is no child that's totally protected. There are protective environments, but no child is totally protected from being captured by alcohol or substances and drugs. It, It doesn't matter where you live, urban, suburban, rural. It doesn't matter where you send your child to school or or how much money you make, every child is vulnerable. And and some kids get attracted to it through peer pressure. 
some get attracted because of curiosity and their friends are using it and they want to try it and see what this is all about. And then there's another group of adolescents who are using a substance to medicate an underlying psychological issue. For example, most of the kids that I dealt with at Menninger who were smoking marijuana, and they were smoking multiple times a day, when I asked them to help me understand why they were smoking so much marijuana, the number one answer that came back was, it helps me with my anxiety. So for a certain number of kids, not all kids, but a certain number of kids, there is an underlying psychological reason that that child is using a substance to medicate. Maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's depression, maybe it's some type of trauma. Maybe it's being bullied at school that the parents weren't aware of. But there is, in many cases, an underlying issue that also needs to be treated in addition to treating the substance abuse. Yeah, no, I completely agree. So the teenage years are actually the worst time to use substances because of their brain development. But then they're drawn to substances because of dopamine and the reward system. So can you explain the brain's go system and the brain's stop system? Yeah, so the first point that I want moms to understand is that their child's brain is in the process of developing and maturing and growing. Our brains don't get fully developed until we're around age 24 or 25. So parents need to be aware that their child's brain is very vulnerable to being damaged by any type of alcohol or drugs. It's a maturing, developing brain. Parents just need to know that basic fact. The brain system, as I describe it in the book, it has a go system and a stop system. The go system is a reward pathway in the brain that drugs really concentrate on that give that pleasurable feeling that a child gets or an adult when they take a drug because our brains have a chemical called dopamine in them. And dopamine is a neurotransmitter that helps us feel pleasure. So when we go out to a movie or we have dinner with friends or family and we feel pleasure, it's because dopamine rises in the brain. The issue with drugs is it causes a huge surge of dopamine in the brain. So a person using a drug gets an, an immense amount of dopamine in the brain and feels a lot of pleasure. And that's what I call the go system. That's the brain's way of saying, go and seek the drug, go and seek the pleasure that you've had, go and seek it. The stop system is that prefrontal cortex in the brain. It's the last part of the brain to become fully developed, but it's important in terms of abstract reasoning, weighing pros and cons, and making hopefully good rational decisions. So we have a go and a stop system in the brain. And outside of addiction, those two areas of the brain do a pretty good job of talking to each other. And we end up making good decisions usually. But in addiction, the go system, that part of the brain that is shouting, go and seek the drug, go and seek the pleasure, overrides the more rational stop system, that prefrontal cortex. It's almost, I describe it in the book as, it's almost as if the go system is screaming, go and get the drug. And the stop system is whispering, no, you shouldn't do that. Yes, yes, absolutely. Also, I think in our culture today, there's a lot of confusion over marijuana, yeah. especially since it's legalized in many states and, and there are an abundance of CBD products and 
everyone's talking about the health benefits of marijuana. So what do you think about teens and marijuana? I think teens should stay away from marijuana. Uh, I, I think it's a very risky substance for them. Uh, it's different for adolescents than for adults because, again, the adolescent brain is in the process of maturing and developing. So, therefore, using a substance like marijuana as a teenager, you run the risk of doing damage to the brain. That may or may not happen to an adult that's smoking marijuana. But, again, we get back to the neuroscience. A brain that is developing, a teenage brain that is in the process of maturing and developing needs to be protected. And anytime we see a substance like marijuana introduced to it, you can do some real damage. Those teenagers that I was working with at Minniger, they were all very bright. Their IQs were above average to superior. But when the psychological and the neuropsychological tests came back, what I saw was the processing speed of the brain was below average. The short-term memory was impaired and the motivation was reduced. Was mm. all of that because of marijuana? Probably not. But was marijuana contributing to it? Probably so. So I think the message to parents is just because it's legal for adults to use a substance like alcohol or marijuana doesn't necessarily mean it's safe for an adolescent to do the same thing. That's a really good point. So I think some of the moms are listening would be thinking, well, there's obviously a continuum of what drug or alcohol, you know, looks like in teens, like they're not all addicted teens, it's like many of them are just experimenting. And so how should parents handle experimentation, like when it actually really is the first time they smoked marijuana or they got drunk? Well, I think parents need to just sort of take a deep breath, look at the situation, uh, try to have a conversation with their child, not argue with them, not demand, not threaten, not punish, but have a conversation that allows the child perhaps to open up and explain what was really going on. You know, start the conversation from an inquiring point of view, being curious. You want to know what led your child to experiment, say, with marijuana or alcohol. What was going on? You know, was it simply peer influence, peer pressure? Was it just curiosity? And then start that discussion. And then um, I, I think it's always helpful for parents to have a discussion about the neuroscience with their child, help them understand the need to protect their brain. But that first conversation, I think, needs to come out of a point of curiosity. As a parent, you want to know what was going on. What led you experiment with this substance? You know, help me understand it. Yeah, I think that is really, really great advice because it's real easy for a parent to get angry yeah. Like you took, you know, you took the scotch out of my alcohol cabinet. How could you do that? And so I think parents, it would be really good to take a break if you're just furious before you do have that conversation, because sometimes you can't go from catching them to curiosity. It, sometimes it needs a little bit of time, but I completely agree. What you want to do is be able to stay in communication with your teen so that they can call you if they're stuck at a party or if they're over their head. Yeah. So, and the way you do that is by being curious and not laying into them, which is what you probably will feel like when you catch them. 
Yeah, that, that's an excellent point because teens really do look to their parents for guidance and for direction. They may not admit that, but they really, they really do. And yes, as a parent, you're going to have a full range of emotions when you first find out that your child might be using some alcohol from the alcohol that you have at home or maybe taking some pills from your, from your medicine cabinet or trying and experimenting with marijuana. You're, you're going to Get, you're going to feel scared and then you're going to feel angry and you do need time to sort of process that and calm down so that you can have this discussion with your child about what you are observing and simply try to uh, approach it from an inquiring point of view and have your child give you some information. That's great. So how do parents really know there's a problem? When should parents be concerned and what are the warning signs that parents should know about? Well, in my book, I have warning signs uh, specifically for alcohol abuse. I have warning signs for marijuana use. I have warning signs for a child that might be self-harming themselves or have an eating disorder because sometimes, not always, but sometimes a child will be self-harming themselves and also using a, a substance to medicate an underlying issue. So those warning signs are in my book. As a general rule, what I advise parents to do is pay attention to the changes that you see in your child. You know your child better than anyone. So pay attention to some of these behavioral changes that you see. Uh, examples would be a child who used to participate in sports and outside extracurricular activities no longer is interested in those things. A child who used to be very social and outgoing now becomes very quiet and isolated. A child who used to introduce you to their friends. You knew who their friends were. You might have even known who their family members were. Now becomes very secretive about who their friends are. So pay attention to the warning signs. Don't assume that what you're seeing is just normal adolescent acting out behavior. It might very well be that, but it might also be an indication that there's something going on underneath the surface. Now, if these changes uh, come and go, they don't last very long. It's probably not too concerning. But if these changes linger on and you begin to see more of them, one and then two and then three, then I think it's time perhaps to, to be more concerned and to look to getting some assessments done so that you have a complete understanding, a better understanding of what, why those changes are going on. So what do you think about parents doing drug tests? I, I think, first of all, drug tests are not 100% proof. You know, they're, they're not foolproof. I think that once a child has gone through treatment, regardless of what kind of treatment that is, then I think the drug test can be a way to reinforce a child's abstinence from substances. And I think you can use it almost as a reward type system. And, and as time goes on, I think the frequency of those tests will become less and less frequent. But those are really tests that are designed to reassure the parent that everything is staying on track. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think parents initially in recovery, after a child is going through treatment and, and after treatment, I think parents need that reassurance that everything is staying on track. Yeah, no, that's great. So I remember for many, many years, I worked at University of Texas Mental Science Institute, and I would be supervising residents. And I remember a resident was asking this teen or young adult, and he said, 
do you have a problem with drugs? And so the young teen or adult started laughing and said, no, it wasn't a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a question that I could have predicted the answer on. <laughs> right. No, it's funny. So yeah, he didn't get anything from that. So it was a great learning moment for this resident. But I think a lot of teens who are using don't have, they don't have a problem with it. And they don't see the problem with it. And I know you talk about the five primary stages of change. So what do you do if that teen is in the pre-contemplation stage? And can you explain the stages? Well, just about every teen that I worked with was in the pre-contemplation stage. And, and for parents, uh, the pre-contemplation stage is basically the denial stage. It's a stage where uh, a person will say, I don't have a problem with this. There's nothing wrong with it. I don't understand why I can't keep using. It's the denial stage. That's what we call pre-contemplation. The next stage is contemplation, which is, okay, uh, I'm not sure what I want to do. Maybe I want to keep smoking marijuana. Maybe I don't, but I'm willing to keep an open mind on it. I'm willing to look at the facts. And, and for a teenager, moving from the pre-contemplation, the denial stage, to the contemplation okay, I'll take a look at it stage, is a huge move. That is not an insignificant move. That is a huge move. My goal many times in working with students, because they all came in pre-contemplation, they all said that it wasn't a problem. My goal was to, number one, understand from their point of view why they were using this substance, not to judge them, but just to get a better understanding of why they were using the substance, and then to try to move them into the contemplation stage where they were more willing to look at the advantages and disadvantages because many times if I could get them to that stage, um, and sometimes that stage just involves, uh, just involves being willing to try an experiment of not using a substance for three to six months and see how they felt. But initially, I think for every teenager, the goal is to move them from the denial stage, that pre-contemplation stage, into the contemplation stage, where they're willing to listen to you, they're willing to look at the pros and the cons, and, and to do their own objective review of it. And then the next stage, hopefully, they move into action where they're actually making a decision to stop using and putting in place a plan. Yeah, that's, that's really good information. If a teen is in trouble, what's the best course of treatment? Well, it depends on what the trouble is. Um, you well, know, yeah. if, well, I guess I can, yes, right, absolutely. So how would a parent even know their teen is in, in trouble? Well, I think you're going to know that your, your, your teen is in trouble when the consequences of their substance use uh, become more and more significant. You know, it might start as just rebellion and family arguments and dis disagreements. It may escalate into disciplinary action at school. Uh, it may escalate further into engagement with law enforcement officials. So you can almost, 
we see the severity of the problem climbing up the ladder, it may start as simple as arguments and, and rebellion against family rules. And then pretty soon there's, there's disciplinary action at school, maybe a suspension from school. And then uh, it gets really serious if, uh, if law enforcement gets involved. And you want to intervene at the earliest possible moment. When you suspect there's a problem, that's when you need to intervene. So what would be a good first step of intervention? To have, a, converse, to have a conversation with your child. Um, okay. to, to, to come at it, like I was saying earlier, from an inquiring point of view. Uh, you know, for example, I'm seeing these behaviors. Can you help me understand what's going on? If you suspect your child is using a substance, you know, don't start by accusing them, but express your concern and your fear. It's either right or wrong. But if you suspect your child is using marijuana, there's nothing wrong with expressing that fear and that thought to your child. Not, not an accusing way, but in an inquiring way. So the first step is to have a discussion with your child. Now, that's a discussion that's likely to go one of two ways. The child's either going to blow up, become argumentative and defensive and angry, or the child might actually open up and give you some information that you didn't know about before. But regardless of how the conversation goes, if you as a parent are still concerned that your child might be involved with a substance, you need to go to the next step, which is to get some assessments and some tests done to help you understand what's really going on. And I know you have a chapter that in your book, but where would they go? Well, the kinds of assessments that they're going to need, because you want a comprehensive view of everything that's going on. You don't want to just focus on the substance use, although it is important. So you would get an addictions assessment. That's what I was doing at Menninger Clinic. You would also get a complete physical exam to rule out anything physically that might be contributing to the behaviors you're seeing. And you'll want a psychological or a neuropsychological assessment to rule in or rule rule out if there's underlying emotional issues that, that need to be taken care of and assessed. Where can you go to get these assessments? I would say that you could start with your family physician uh, to get some referrals. You could speak to the school counselor that can maybe do some of these assessments. It could be the school social worker. It could be the school counselor. Many of them can do some of these assessments. If not, they can give you referrals to people in the community. You could check with the mental health association like NAMI. They offer services and can make referrals too. Uh, so there are many resources out there for a parent to, to turn to if they want to get these assessments done. Okay, that's great. So any last words of advice for the moms out there? Yes, I would say first, learn what the warning signs are so that you are better prepared uh, to deal with them and to recognize them. Also, uh, have a sense of hope because uh, no matter what your child gets involved in, no matter how this has affected you as a parent, there is a sense of hope. We know that treatment works, whether it's uh, outpatient, intensive outpatient, or residential treatment. Once you get involved in the treatment process, there is a tremendous sense of hope. We know that our brains have a tremendous capacity to heal themselves. So once 
you recognize the warning signs and you and you get your child into appropriate treatment and you have the appropriate assessment so you know what's going on, then I think the challenge becomes keeping your child in treatment. That will be a challenge. As long as the child is in treatment, there is a sense of hope that things can get better for your child and for your family. That's really, really encouraging. So I just thought of one last question because it's, I think it's important. You mentioned briefly, but can you talk more about those process addictions like gaming or all that? Yes, the process addictions are very similar to the chemical addictions. The chemical addictions are the alcohol and the drugs. The process addictions tend to be more behavioral, but have many of the same characteristics as the uh, chemical addictions. They also increase dopamine in the brain and give a pleasurable feeling. And these process addictions are things like self-injury. Uh, they can be eating disorders that are being uh, diagnosed. Uh, they can involve excessive gaming, uh, cell phone use, those similar type of activities. They can become compulsive activities as well. I think most parents probably already have noticed that their child is glued to their cell phone or some social media. And it's interesting because the studies show that uh, teenagers themselves recognize that they are compulsively attached to their cell phone, but they also recognize that they have a very difficult time getting away from their cell phone. It's a lack of control is what it is. A hallmark of addiction is the inability to control something. Uh, and teenagers know that, that they compulsively are tied to these cell phones. And, and I think many times that causes conflict within the family because the child is on social media. The other thing that we have noticed, the study that came out from Facebook has some alarming statistics about how being on Instagram and being on Facebook is causing particularly young females to feel so horrible about themselves. Males too, because they're giving these images that are not real and they're comparing themselves to these almost perfect images. And teenagers are reporting that they're really feeling rather horrible as a result of spending time on Instagram. They can't pull themselves away from it, but they're saying, you know, they're comparing themselves to these unrealistic images so, so it's important for parents to have a conversation with their child about what's going on with social media, to check up on your child's use of social media, to be able to have the passwords and to have a discussion with your child about what is appropriate and what is inappropriate behavior in social media. And, and to be aware that many of these images that these young girls are looking at and comparing themselves to on social media are not real. But the bottom line is, if your child is involved in social media and you're concerned about it, pay attention to what's going on, have a conversation with them, help them understand what's appropriate and what's inappropriate, and be aware of the dangers that, that are there when they start to compare themselves to these images. But it's becoming a real problem. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So two things I want to say about that is what I really appreciate, Richard, is that you are reinforcing the importance of the connection between the parent and teen. And that's what my work is based on. I completely agree on that. And being able to have conversations 
through the really hard stuff. And so I love that. And then the second thing, as you were talking about the process addictions, is parents, I hope you heard that, that compulsive piece of these process addictions are what drive you crazy because your kids are really having a hard time detaching from these behaviors if it's gaming, social media, cutting, eating disorders. And that needs treatment just as much as substances. Yes, I would agree 100% with that. Many times the substance abuse becomes the focus of attention and often these other issues like self-injury, eating disorders, gaming, social media obsession almost fly under the radar. They need to be addressed as well. Yes, absolutely. So how can moms reach you or parents reach you? The easiest way is to go to my book's website, which is www.helptheaddictedchild.com, helptheaddictedchild.com. On that site, they can read endorsements and book reviews. They can read a little bit about both the book and the parent workbook. If they wish to have a copy of it, there's a link that'll take them directly to Amazon where they can purchase the book as as a Kindle uh, or as a paperback or they could get the workbook as a paperback. And there's also a link where they can send me a message or ask me a question and it'll come directly to me. So the easiest way is just to go to helptheaddictedchild.com. All right, and I'll put that in my show notes also. Richard, I thank you so much for your time today. And I know this is gonna be helpful to the moms listening. I hope it is. And I thank you so much for allowing me to have this opportunity to reach out to the moms and, and, and hopefully give them some information and encouragement on a subject that can be very scary. Uh, but my advice is knowledge is power. So the more you learn about this, the more confident you will be in it. So thank you for giving me that opportunity. And thank you for participating in the discussion. I think you helped make this hopefully a much more profitable and informative uh, discussion for the moms that are out there. So thank you, Colleen. I appreciate it. You're so welcome. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and give Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my best-selling and award-winning book, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, A Guide for Mothers Everywhere. You can find that and order it online at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And you can always find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.